I want to thank Pastor uh, JP for providing you the doctrine when it comes to perseverance of the saints. And given the sermon series that I was presenting, we're going to be looking a little bit closer or in regards to these sermon series, which you'll be finding out more and more is now after having that doctrine reestablishing your mind for a practical perspective, let's take a look at how it applies to your life. So with that being said, we've come to the final sermon in this three-part series. I have titled it, Test to See That You Are in the Faith, Lest You Fail the Test. To the Christian faithful, your faith in Christ will always be tested, and this should be accepted. But the question remained, and as always, you should be trying to answer this, who is testing your faith? Our scripture text is 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11, which reads, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Shall we now look to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this Saturday that you've given us, Lord. And we thank you that you have allowed us to be here today, Lord. I pray we be with the congregation. Let them take in the heat of the word that is being spoken of. As if the truth is being spoken, it is the very word that comes from your mouth. Also, be with thy servant today as he preach and teach your people. And knowing confidence that you alone, Lord, are the Lord of conscience. Let them receive the word with childlike love and a willing mind, knowing that you are continually with them. In Christ's most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, in this final piece, I like to do a summary. And the reason why is because there are gaps between the times that the pastors will be here. So some things may not become fresh to your mind. I mean, granted, when you listen again on Sermon Audio or online, you know, unless you get, you know, unless you're not tired of hearing our voices, <laughs> you will also be able to attest and tell how all this comes back in full circle. So this sermon really is to summarize the series. And by summarizing it, we will now look at our scripture text, Ah, the Peace de Resistance, which is, if you have your Bibles, you can now turn to 2 Peter and chapter 1. And I would like to bring your attention to the design and the aspects of the letter. Now, granted, I did not do this in the first and second sermon with good reason. They had their purposes. But here, since we're looking at the actual sermon text, I just want to bring that to your attention. What was the design? The reason why Peter wrote his epistle. Well, let's t look. There is two letters. There's 1 Peter and there is 2 Peter. And consider, not asking you to turn to 1 Peter, but consider the audience that he was addressing. It was someone 
there's no doubt he personally knew and Shepard, which is why he listed it as such. So, historically, through the Christian faith, what has this letter, and I'll start with 1 Peter first, addressing? I'll lean to Calvin to make this note. He states, the design of Peter in this epistle is to exhort the faithful to the denial of the world and the contempt of it, so that being freed from carnal affections and all earthly and, uh, hindrances, they might with their whole soul aspire after the celestial kingdom of Christ. In that, they're being elevated by hope, supported by patience, and fortified by courage and perseverance. We heard about that today in our catechism lesson, didn't we? With this being instated, they might overcome all kinds of temptations and pursue the course that is the Christian faith and practice it throughout their entire life. Words cannot be better stated about that book. But wait, someone may have an idea that is watching the telecast saying, but you were addressing 2 Peter. Why did you have to include the excerpt from the understanding of 1 Peter? Well, then I will answer back in retort. When writing 1 Peter at the time, it could have been that that letter was all-inclusive and that the apostle did not need to write again. But why did he? I mean, the second letter even states that he's not writing to those churches. And annoyed of emphasis is that, could it be assumed that there was something that he needed to correct that they were not practicing? Well, I like Calvin's compelling argument for the second letter. He states, it is probable now that the apostle was now in his old age. And he was nearing his end. Second Peter 1.14 states in kind, Knowing that laying aside my earthly dwelling is imminent, also our Lord Jesus Christ had made known and clear to me. So it is seen that he did have a revelation to share with the church and to its benefits. Calvin continues here. It may have been at the request of the godly. Ah, so that means his church was indeed lacking something. He allowed this testimony of his mind to be recorded shortly before his death, that it might somewhat avail to support the good and repress the wicked. Now, here we get to the purpose of why he wrote this second epistle, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. Ah, so it does show he is indeed writing to the same churches he wrote in the first letter. But then note here, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder. So something was happening where they were not doing what they were told to do in the first epistle. He continues, that you should remember the words spoken of beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. This is a very, very profounding term to go by. Let me let Calvin now convey and put this 
all together because now it now shows why I put intent into the title that I gave it and why those first two sermons that I provided in this series was important. Calvin states, the design is now in this second epistle to show that those who have once professed the true faith of Christ ought to respond to their calling to the last. Note what, I, what Calvin stated from the first letter and what he's stating and what should have been showed. Now note what is responding now with the second Calvin continues, after then extolling in high terms the grace of God, he now recommends the people holiness unto life because God usually punishes in hypocrites a false profession of his name with what? Dreadful blindness. And on the other hand, which is the counter, he increases his gifts to those who truly and from the heart embraces him. So, now that your Bibles are open, we will now be looking at 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11. And I do know some others have various versions, but let us read again so now we can get to the two points of this sermon. It states, Therefore, brethren, and my version is the New American Standard Bible, in case people are wondering, but therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. The two points I want to convey in this sermon is, one, what are these things we are to practice? But number two, what are the repercussions and rewards that comes with it? By point number one, with your Bible still open, I want to bring to your attention in context the earlier parts of 2 Peter chapter 1. So when you move your eyes up a little bit forward, I want to turn your attention starting at verse number 5. Note what he states here. The apostle states, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply it with moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, that word again, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in godliness, brotherly kindness, and lastly, in brotherly kindness, love. Now note the clause here, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, if you bring your attention even up further a little bit towards the beginning of the chapter, you will note how he starts his book or letter. He states, after announcing who he is, Simon Peter, the bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Note here again, he continues, to those, and he's addressing, who received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, <laughs> I cannot stress enough how I'm going to bring this back full circle now. Because in Sermon 1, what did I present with you? We laid the foundation in the workings. Your faith. 
What must it be in? It must be in Christ. And he is sharing with you the understanding that one, he's an apostle. But remember when I brought up in my introduction about how Calvin made that distinction about the first letter onto the second. A reminder to them about what they were to remember, given that it was taught by the apostles and the prophets. It's the same adage he's using here. Note the same faith as ours. You see this in verses 1 and 2. So he's conveying that the faith of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, to Moses, and the major and minor prophets, to the twelve apostles, and the bishops who were under their tutelage. It continues to the reformers who were also bishops and pastors of old, and of now, and of the future. The Christian faith is universal, and in that, it is static. It falls around Christ and Christ only. For it is in Christ, Hebrews 12, verse 2. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. In the same instance, being the mediator, he intercedes on your behalf as you make your prayers and supplications known to God, Romans 8, 34. And then, by all means, as you live on this earth, Consider by sending the Holy Spirit after he raised up bodily, you are now in forever union with him. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just, which is Christ, for the unjust, which is us, that he might bring us to God. But it doesn't end there. As 1 Peter 3, 18 continues, Note in this, your compensation, uh, the composition of your faith in Christ is also found in the sheer fact that as the verse continues, he was put to death concerning the flesh, but quickened by the spirit is the meaning behind the resurrection, his resurrection. And as we learned throughout the catechism lesson today, you would note that the Messiah had your whole well-being with a tent. From the time you came into the faith, from the time you will leave this earth, to the fact that your bodies are still being preserved, and when you are in heaven, you are indeed glorifying him. The Messiah states, unlike the humanists who consider that this world, when they leave, is the end, he states, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even after he dies. Note that compelling statement. And I can't address this enough, which is the reason why, as you would see, and I'm not going to go ahead and read it, but I want to bring your attention to those first two verses, because verses 1 through 4 and 2 Peter chapter 1 is kind of a plush to bring a whole proposition and idea together, it's very compelling why Sermon 1 was needed to show you why proper faith in Jesus Christ is not something that just is universally known, but is also predicated on how you are going to behave in 
your walk. You can't say, I know God, and yet your faith is in shambles. <laughs> you just can't. Because your orthodoxy in your orthopraxy, you will find that if your orthodoxy is right, your practice is going to follow suit. But when somebody's looking at your practice, they can go down that rabbit hole and find holes in your orthodoxy. So it's very important that your faith is held strong. So on to point number one then. What are these items that things that he's telling us to practice? Well, we read in verse 5, by applying diligence into our moral excellence. What could that mean? You know, I mean, we have people today who says I'm a moralist. Okay, and what does that mean? They'll tell you, you know, I helped grandma walk down the street. You know, I fed the needy. I give up my Sundays to uh, feed the poor and help people who can't help themselves. Okay, that's cool. Good for you. I was in church. I don't know about you, but I was in church. So to them, that kind of thinking is like, well, I benefited myself. It made me feel good inside. But what Peter is saying here is do you have a judgment that is predicated on the word of God? And I know some of your versions, if you're looking at it through the Geneva 1599 version or the New King James and King James is telling you virtue. How can one have good virtue if they don't have good judgment? And how can your judgment be good if it's not predicated on the word of God? Albeit the law of God. So I bring your attention, if you want like, turn your Bibles to Romans 2. And we will look at verses 14 through 15. And note, it's the same thing with the guy who's a moralist. You know, he does a law that is in his heart, but he doesn't want to reveal that that law is actually from the law of God. I mean, note here what Paul states, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature do the things of the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Look at it. The moralist is justifying himself. But note, by Verse 15, what happens to them? Who show the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and between themselves are thoughts accusing or else excusing themselves. See, in, in their mind, they're thinking, well, I didn't kill anybody, and I'm helping somebody on a Sunday. I'm taking my time off. I must be doing something right. Well, if you peer up a little bit, Above, in Romans 12, I mean, sorry, Romans 2, verse 12, as many have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Many who have sinned in the law will also be judged by the law. So how much good is your moralism to you if you're doing all this, but then in effect, you're outside the church? You did it for yourself now, didn't you? See, this is the check that your test of faith should come with. You may think, oh yeah, I'm a good person because I did this, but in reality, that doesn't sum up if it's outside Christ. I mean, think about this. 
if the law is indeed written in our hearts, how is it then we are to practice this virtue, this more excellence that Peter is conveying? So here is that full circle come again within this series. In Sermon 2, I brought you your external and eternal challenges. Every day they come, but how do you approach them? Meaning, do you have an approach with them with regards to the law of God? In that, do you possess this thought? If I do this, will I violate the law of God? Because a person who doesn't come with that approach, and as JP was trying to speak on, mortifying sin to your race through perseverance, he doesn't have a regard to how his actions are going to be when he goes ahead and conducts something. I mean, like I said, he thinks because he helps grandma across the street, he's a good guy and he's going to heaven or wherever he thinks he's going to be, unless he thinks he's going to be in some kind of reincarnated state and become a bird or whatever. But then... Peter, if you actually look in the chapter, or you're familiar with the chapter, he'll even continue in his epistle. He states in 2 Peter 18, 19, they speak with vanity because they're enticed by their own fleshy desires. They're enticed by sensuality, and they can't even escape the ones who they talk to because they're in that same thought and process. In fact, the person they speak to, Peter will states in verse 19, will even promise them freedom. But in reality, they're actually slaves to their own corruption. See, that's the difference between being a moralist and someone who's in Christianity. So with someone, I have to give you the negative aspect of this, who's actually in Christianity, the proper practice towards moral excellence or this virtue that Peter is conveying is that you are specially made. So you have a special revelation that the humanist cannot share. And if that is the case, our confession even states, you experience something they can't experience. And what's that experience? You experience freedom from the guilt of sin and the curse of the moral law. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the moral law, having become a curse for us. But here now is the practical sense of that special revelation that comes with that moral excellence that Peter is asking for you to apply diligently. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, you will be zealous for good works and deeds. How so? The workings of the Spirit is in your hearts. You are different. You have been adopted into the family, into the kingdom of God, and you have the Spirit working in your spirit. And that not only do you consider the law of God, you want to do the good works because you want to please Him and not yourself. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, as we heard earlier today. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my own presence alone, but much more now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is the 
for it is God who's at work, both in you to will and to do the work for his own pleasure. That is applying diligence and depending on your um, your Bible and virtue and moral excellence that Peter's trying to bring. Well, let's segue now. If your moral excellence has now been properly grounded, how about your knowledge? Peter continued, how do we practice with good morals? Having special revelation, practice good and grow in our knowledge. Well, let's bring this back full circle. Sermon 1 stated that Christ is the substance of your faith. But then, in Christ, isn't it? Not stated that in him all treasures of knowledge and wisdom is extolled. We see that in our confession, chapter 8, section 3. It states that Christ encompasses all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3. The full assurance of understanding and resulting in true knowledge of God's mystery is that Christ himself in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom, and of knowledge. So if that is the case, how do we practice in growing our knowledge? Joshua 1 verse 8 states that we should meditate on his word day and night. And there's a promise, there's a benefit to doing all this, so that you may be careful to do what is written, but you will be prosperous and you will succeed. So you mean to tell me if I'm obedient, I'm going to be blessed? Yes. You know, you just don't say or ask the Messiah, well, bless me. And yet you are behaving in sin. I don't think it works that way, to be honest. I think the expectation is like a parent to a child. You do as I say, and you're the reward. Well, let's segue now again. From the knowledge, do we understand how to have self-control? Now, this aspect of practice is really in turn of our liberties that we have in this world. Now, think about it. We have so many things that captivate our attention. And sometimes it makes us numb to things that are happening around the world. Think about it. We have cell phones. So we're allowed to communicate around the world effortlessly. I can be in America. If I want to call a relative in Portugal, I can do that. Very easy. Effortless. What about this? We have mechanisms that will allow us, you know, from the times we heard about how history advanced when they were riding on buggies and horseback and they were riding on ships with cannons. You know, now we can take a flight and fly from here to there. I mean, granted, if you have enough money to do it, sure, why not? <laughs> take the trip, right? You'll be able to see all those pictures you saw on the Discovery Channel. But nonetheless, we have the mechanism and the means to do things we never thought we could ever do. Or if our ancestors were to see this today, they will be mind-blown. But nonetheless, don't you ever feel like you get a sense and you lose reality? You get to watch your favorite TV show. You can pick whatever you want that comes to your first mind. And you don't think about anything other than what's happening in that television screen. And then, since you lost your sense of reality, you also don't think about your dealings with God. 
right? The joke may have been funny. <laughs> we can laugh all we want, but they, were we committing sin by participation? Sometimes that's at the back of our minds. And don't get me wrong, we are sinners. But nonetheless, with self-control, we should be seeking knowledge to guard ourselves from the challenges of this world. I mean, hey, I like a good TV show like anybody else would. But nonetheless, this is also a test in our own faith is to guard ourselves. And how else do we guard ourselves? Especially if we're growing in knowledge of Christ, we should know how to guard ourselves from the challenges, both external and internal, that comes with living here. Self-control is a byproduct of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-24 states, The fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, verse 23, gentleness, self-control. As such, against these there is no law. And now, here's something to add to that. Verse 24, those who belong to Jesus Christ and have crucified the flesh with his passions will practice these. Towards the final piece of this point, from your self-control, we now come to perseverance. And I'm going to stop at the perseverance because, as you can see, the trend is continuing. As you build and build upon each other, you notice that everything leads to that last point, which is love. But perseverance, I just want to stop at. Because then we have the doctrine that was given in the catechism lesson. So we have a knowledge of what perseverance actually is. But do you ever ask yourself, can I practice that? Is that something I'm doing in my own life? Am I persevering? That's a valid question. <laughs> Am I persevering in my walk? So let me shed an idea of how that should go. Because if you realize with this actual last sermon, it's actually providing you the practicality that comes with testing your faith. I told you about what your faith should be founded on. I even told you what you should expect, especially living in this world. Now comes the practicality. And with that being said, and we heard the doctrine being spoken of today, how do we practice perseverance? It actually goes back to even my title, test to see that you are in the faith. <laughs> it's a, it sounds simple, but yeah, that's an aspect of it. Actually a pretty big one. Why? Because I have a pretty good point. It proves to yourself, I mean, granted, you have the fruits to prove to others when they see you act, but it proves to yourself when you look in the mirror, is your testimony even true? Are you a Christian? Flat out. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul states in his second letter to the Corinthians, mind you, Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Who? He challenged your faith. He says your faith, is it in Christ? Because if it is in Christ, you would do as I commanded in the first letter and as I'm 
give you the reminders in a second. And his statement is correct, indeed, unless you fail the test, which is, where's your faith? Is Christ really the substance? Is it in you? Do you do, you do everything to please yourself? Or are you obedient? Because even we learn today, if Christ is the substance, he's the one who works your faith on to its completion. He perfects it. He's the only one who can. In fact, let's even go a step further. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, when they misuse and abuse the Lord's Supper? But let a man examine himself? That's a test. That's a test of your faith to see if you truly are in the family. Because here's the warning. For he who eats and drinks, drinks judgment to the cells if you do not judge the body rightly. That is your body. I mean, you know the doctrine. Not saying you know. He's trying to give the conveyment that you were taught the proper understanding of the Lord's Supper. But did you judge yourself properly? Because the punishment is this. You either be weak, you either be sick, or you will die. Depending on the severity of the sin that you're dwelling on. How about this? It's an important part in perseverance. Do you deter and not let sin reign in your mortal bodies? Consider Romans 6, 12 to 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its laws. 13. And do not go presenting the members of your body as sinful instruments in right and unrighteousness. How about this one? Are you sensitive to sin? Ha! <laughs> Romans 6, 20 to 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You didn't care. You were like the moralist. You thought to yourself, I can do good on my own. Who needs Christianity, right? That's what the humanist thinks. That's what all the other religions think. And now that you change, you read, listen to verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you in deriving from the things which you are now ashamed of? Notice the change here. You used to practice that stuff, but now it, you, you don't want to. For those outcomes that you used to practice, I'll tell you the truth. Everybody who practices them and not seek repentance, they will be led to death. Ah, how about this? Romans 7, we will start at verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So Paul states, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's the result? So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. But on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. See? There goes the temperament. There goes the change that one would expect in their life as they persevere. Well, we're on to point number two. 
because there are rewards and repercussions for practicing and not practicing what Peter had spoken of. If, I, if you still have your Bibles open to 2 Peter verse uh, chapter 1, we were looking at verse number 8. And he states, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, all the work comes back full circle. Because think about it. He was explaining. These are the things you're supposed to be practicing. And I already conveyed to you what your foundation should be in your faith. So therefore, you will grow in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, mind you, look, you read in Joshua 1, verse 8, you will have success and prosper everywhere you turn. You know, it's kind of funny. People always ask, you know, why does the Lord bless me like the guy on TV? I just saw that one man had enough money to fly into space. Why can't I not do that? And his concerns, you notice, sounds misguided because he was worried about the material things in regards to trying to fly a spaceship when not considering looking at the guy in the mirror. How have you dealt with sin in your own life? Now, speaking of that guy, let's look at verse number nine. For who lack these qualities is blind and short-sighted and have forgotten his purifications of his former sins. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey? So you can take there's only two forks on the road, two routes on the uh, on the road. Either slave to sin or slave to righteousness. Now, if you take the fork, that is the slaves to sin, you will find out that, as the verse states, you'll be resulting in death. But now note in verse number 10, and I did this on purpose, if you actually practice these things, as Peter was stating, and you, look at, you take the other route on that fork of the road, you will never stumble now note the harmony that is from the old to the new. Oh, I love that term. First, in Isaiah 28, 16, the Lord states, as he's speaking through Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Hmm. Amazing. That when you look at 2 Peter 1, 8, it says, and he stated, you will not, if you practice things, you will not be useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because like Isaiah stated, he is your cornerstone. Oh, now let's go to the new. 1 Corinthians 3, 10, according to the grace of our God who was given to me, like a wise master builder. I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he built on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than what it is laid, which is our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's double down now. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints 
Ah, that universal faith shaped substance by Christ and are of God's household by what? Having been built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ, he himself being the foundation, i.e. the chief cornerstone. So now, with the time, unless you're not catching on it, we've reached the summary. We've concluded onto this sermon. But now I want to yield it to verse number 11. And I did it with purpose. Because if you have your Bible still open, note the brevity that this verse holds. It's not difficult to understand. And it should align you with the comfort where this whole series is trying to apply you to. For in this way, as the verse states, the entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So there's an end goal here. There is an end goal. All that was spoken of, all that I'm trying to show you, there is an end goal. What is that end goal? What is this entrance that it, into the kingdom will be abundantly supplied to me. What is that even trying to mean or explain? How can I see that, right? Well, JP taught about the doctrine of perseverance and glorification today. You ever considered your insurance? That's where this whole aspect is going towards. Your assurance in this faith will reach an infallible level. Now, if you read our confession, and I'm not going to take the time because my time is cut here, but you will hear about that assurance in the levels that it can reach. It's in chapter 18, unless you were thinking of it. But note the verses here. Note the verses here that's going to supplement what Peter is speaking of as I close. Let's start with James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 1 John 2 verse 3. By this we know that we come to know him if we keep his commandments. Same book, going to chapter 3, 18 and 19. Let us not love with word and tongue, but indeed in truth, because we will know that we are of the truth and we will have our hearts assured of, and it will be before him. But lastly, Hebrews 6, 17 through 18. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. It is booked, states interposed, but it is booked with an oath. So that by verse 18, it states that by two unchangeable things in which is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So with this infallible insurance, which means that you will continue to grow in understanding, knowing fully well the promises of God are indeed true, will happen, are meant with a stamp. That means you can book it. You will notice life will change for you. You can notice that 
your speech may change. James 4, 13 through 15, it states, You know, some will say today and tomorrow, let us go here and make a profit. But James states, yet do you not know where your life will be tomorrow? You're just a vapor in the wind and you can vanish. But you should say instead, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this and that. You see, when you test to see that you are in the faith, you will look to please the Lord and not yourself. And when your attitude changes, your practice would also change. And with your practice also changing, you can look in the mirror and have confidence every single day that you know what? When the time comes, the time comes. But when the Lord is ready to take me home, I know with full insurance that I will be with him. Let's now let the Lord our God in prayer.